Hello, welcome to the latest episode of uh, Reading Orwell. This is an episode called Emptiness, Racism and Fat Shaming in Burmese Days. I'm Nathan Waddell and there's a content warning for this episode. Some of the material that I'm going to be uh, speaking about has things to do with racism and sexual violence. Burmese Days, 1934, is a novel of empire. In its scathing, self-lacerating account of this subject, it tries to pick apart what Priyamvada Gopal has recently called a tenacious colonial mythology, in which Britain, followed by the remainder of the geopolitical West, is the wellspring of ideas of freedom, either bestowing it on slaves and colonial subjects, or teaching them how to go about obtaining it. Rosinka Chaudhuri invites us to consider that the novel's dehumanization and depersonalization of the Burmese, a characteristic of Orwell's imagination encountered again in 1984 with the proles, is in fact only half the story, given that the Burmese are not singled out in this respect. Every character's racial characteristics, Chaudhuri insists, are fiercely, angrily presented in all their ugliness. Orwell is equally caustic of the Englishman, the Burman and the Indian it would be fair to remark that there is not a single favourable character in the entire book. So we can see already how Burmese Days operates on several levels at once. Content to attack the ideological systems that took Orwell to Burma, it's also a novel tangled in the myths and legends of empire to a certain extent, with what David Dwan calls the full autonomy of the colonial subject always hanging in the balance. Orwell's rhetoric participates in the colonial superiority it indicts, but it also captures well the ironies of domination. The novel tells the story of various personalities in the fictional setting of Kyauktada, a town in Burma, now Myanmar, under the dominion of the British Raj, the crown rule in the Indian subcontinent. Chief among these characters is John Florey, a 35-year-old timber merchant who is bitterly ashamed of the birthmark that runs down the left side of his face. He's frequently reminded of the birthmark's supposedly shaming qualities. Flory came to Burma as a 19-year-old after an undistinguished education at a cheap, third-rate public school. The intervening years have been lonely, eventless and corrupting, years of ageing and degradation. And the novel connects this process of decay with Flory's physical appearance by emphasising that years of Eastern life, fever, loneliness and intermittent drinking had set their mark on him. Controversially, the birthmark often functions as a sign of Flory's moral failure, changing in hue, apparently, according to circumstances. He's treated in what we might now call a lookist way by the character Elizabeth Lacastine, who hates him for his birthmark's dishonouring and unforgivable implications. And Burmese Days itself might also be considered lookist in turn for making a birthmark bear the weight of hideousness in the first place. Unsurprisingly for an Orwellian protagonist, Flory has something of Eric Blair about him, a moustache and in many respects a comparable background. Like the writer who became George Orwell, he seems to have been made in the dust of the Burmese soil. This has made him what he is, a persistent critic of the imperial system to which, through his occupation, he contributes. Orwell went to Burma after four years of study as a King's Scholar at Eton College, the world-famous private school near Windsor in Berkshire. He started at Eton in 1917 and left in 1921, and it would have been common for boys in Orwell's circumstances to go from Eton to university at either Oxford or Cambridge. 
Instead, he applied for a position with the Indian Imperial Police. And after a week-long examination in mid-1922, in which Orwell showed himself of average academic quality, he was accepted into the programme. In October of that same year, Orwell found himself on a month-long voyage to Burma. Once there, and appointed as a probationary assistant superintendent of police, he went by train to Mandalay, where he began the nine-month training course at the police school. By the end of his probation, Orwell had worked in various districts across Burma, with varying levels of responsibility. He looked after ammunition stores, trained police constables recruited from local populations, went on and organised patrols, worked in charge of police stations, oversaw investigations of minor crimes, and stood in for his superiors when they were away. Orwell spent his five years in Burma, 1922-27, to learning how to be a professional law enforcer. It was also time spent learning the inside workings of a system he would eventually come to despise. The closest point of contact between Burmese days and Orwell, in terms of the views it expresses through its narrator, lies in the novel's general response to what it calls the atmosphere of imperialism. Flory is motivated by resentment, of others and of himself, just as the social circles in which he moves are peopled by agents of empire who have a lofty, unsustainable view of themselves as morally unchallengeable, and who dismiss the so-called natives as despised inferiors. But what Flory hates above all other things, a hatred the narrator reinforces in the manner of the novel's telling, is imperialism itself, and the world realised in the British East through its workings. And this is a long quote from the novel. It is a stifling, stultifying world in which to live. It is a world in which every word and every thought is censored. In England it is hard even to imagine such an atmosphere. Everyone is free in England. We sell our souls in public and buy them back in private among our friends. But even friendship can hardly exist when every white man is a cog in the wheels of despotism. Free speech is unthinkable. All other kinds of freedom are permitted. You are free to be a drunkard, an idler, a coward, a backbiter, a fornicator. But you are not free to think for yourself. Your opinion on every subject of any conceivable importance is dictated for you by the Pukka Sahib's code. Orwell repeated this strategy of opposing a supposedly smothering British-controlled Indian subcontinent to a comparably liberated homeland in the Rotowigan Pier, which stresses how in the free air of England the stifling, stultifying atmosphere of a place like British Burma is not fully intelligible. Burmese Days focuses on the deceptively agreeable atmosphere of supposedly civilised existence, the atmosphere of clubs and the Pukka Sahib's code, the code of the true gentleman. This atmosphere strengthens to argue that the very concept and practice of imperial prestige is itself a kind of lack or absence, a questionable value system whose superiority is far from self-evident. Just as Orwell emphasised in 1940 that the English in India had, and this is a quote, built up a whole mythology turning upon the supposed differences between their own bodies and those of Orientals, so too, in Burmese days, does he call into question the alleged preeminence of the atmosphere of clubs in a setting that consistently reveals its racist underpinnings. Flory is one of several representatives of empire who gather together at the European club, which encapsulates many of the colonial prejudices of the age and stands as an ironic symbol of a decaying politics. Among the club's regulars are Westfield, the district superintendent of police, Two local businessmen, Mr. Lackerstein and the bitterly racist Ellis, Maxwell, a divisional forest officer, and McGregor, 
the deputy commissioner whose conversation is modelled on that of some facetious schoolmaster or clergyman. Flory's friend, Veraswamy, a local doctor who idealises the British, hopes to become a member of the club. Instead, he's defeated in the attempt by the crocodilian magistrate, Yupokin, who spreads false rumours about Veraswamy's supposedly disloyal, anti-British opinions. Yupokin works behind the scenes to spark a political rebellion intended to make him seem like the hero of the district for putting down a series of protests that in fact he himself has organised and for which he intends Veraswamy to take the blame. Against this backdrop, Burmese Days recounts the ups and downs of Flory's attractions to Mr. Lacastine's niece, Elizabeth, and his horrible treatment of his mistress, Mahla May, along with his feelings of inadequacy in the company of Verrill, the polo-playing, poverty-hating, landed gentryman and military police officer who hates the horseless riffraff in places like Kyautada. The novel ends with Flory's suicide, Yupokian's ascension to club membership before he's stricken with apoplexy and dies, and Elizabeth's secure integration into the hierarchies of prestige that the novel has been satirising all along. A bitter ending for a bitter story. Not even Flory's dog survives. There is, perhaps, a hint in the circular reappearance of the European club in the final chapter of the novel, following its unmissable establishing in its second chapter and at various points thereafter, of the venue's function as the be-all and end-all of imperial life in Kyautada. The Europeanness of the club is important. Establishing it as a focal point for an international ideology of empire. Just as in Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness, all of Europe contributes to the making of the wraith-like Kurtz, so too, in Burmese days, do the principles of supposed European benefactors stand behind the Britishness of the club, which symbolises the fate and fortunes of a continent committed in one form or another to invasion, occupation and annexation. The club a dumpy one-storey wooden building, hardly impresses at first glance. Yet to those with eyes intent on seeing, and seeing falsely, it has the attractive power of a heavenly stronghold of all that's right and true. There is a lot of play in this. The descriptions of the club as the spiritual citadel, the real seat of the British power, the nirvana for which native officials and millionaires pine in vain, they're excessive to the point of being comical, a comedy which is very much the point. Such rhetoric is a time-honoured vector of mockery, and the European club, like the club in E.M. Forster's A Passage to India, is nothing if not mocked. Nevertheless, the club retains its power, not least in persuading power-hungry local officials, and Yupokin in particular, that it remains a mysterious temple, a holy of holies far harder of entry than Nirvana. The club thrives on an exclusiveness aimed not only at preventing quote-unquote, Orientals from membership, but also at keeping them snugly in the lower reaches of a supposedly incontestable racial hierarchy. Veraswamy has internalised the assumptions of this pyramidal structure. An ardent devotee of Western values, he maintains with positive eagerness that he, as an Indian, belongs to an inferior and degenerate race. Flory disagrees, and hopes, on the grounds of common decency, to help Veraswamy gain entry to the club he so intensely wishes to join. Ellis, by contrast, as the most xenophobic club member, is all too eager to believe in Veraswamy's lowliness. Ellis hates the idea of electing a native to the European ranks. This club, he says to his fellow members, is a place where we come to enjoy ourselves, and we don't want natives poking about in here. We like to think there's still one place where we're free of them. 
Such a language of us and them emphasizes Ellis's conviction in his own racial superiority, detesting as he does the local population with a bitter, restless loathing as of something evil or unclean. At all times spiteful and perverse with a taste for filthy jokes, Ellis is a racist homophobe who likes to drag women's name, names through the mud and who can be counted on to say something disagreeable about anyone who has just left the room. He embodies many of the worst characteristics of the British presence in the Indian subcontinent, yet his prejudices are far from atypical. Just as Ellis turns up his nose at the apparently unclean locals, so too, for example, does Elizabeth Lacastine recoil at the thought of going in among a quote-unquote smelly native crowd. Flory falls in love with Elizabeth and idealises her to some extent, but the novel makes it clear that her reductively binaristic code of values is highly questionable, with goodness synonymous with the expensive, the elegant, the aristocratic, and badness with the cheap, the low, the shabby, the laborious. Although, although Elizabeth views the local Burmese natives as interesting, they are to her finally only a subject people, an inferior people with black faces. An attitude that leads her to be repelled not only by Flory's admiring view of their filthy, disgusting habits, but also by her own kinship, by virtue of her womanhood, with the local Burmese ladies, who revolt her more than the men. Viewing Burmese women as people, just like a kind of Dutch doll or wooden puppet, Elizabeth cannot help but dismiss them as objects best avoided and ignored. Flory is slow to realise that his constant efforts to interest Elizabeth in the local culture strike her only as perverse, ungentlemanly, and a deliberate seeking after the squalid and the beastly. When she suspects that Flory has a sneaking sympathy with the Eurasians, too, she can't help herself from putting down what she considers these awfully degenerate types as half-castes in the novel's terminology, who always inherit what's worst in both races. Her true colours are shown. There's an emptiness to Elizabeth, a lack suggested not only by her attitudes and code of values, but also by the first syllable of her surname, lack esteem. In this regard, she's a model type of those who tend to desire the ostensibly agreeable atmosphere of clubs, which on closer inspection turns out to be all hollow in substantiality and deathly indolence. The jesting Westfield, for example, has trouble saying meaningful things because everything he says is intended for a joke, a blankness matched by the hollow and melancholy tone of his voice. Westfield's gloomy manner is of a piece with the horrible death in life Flory sees as the characteristic purview of existence in Kyoktada, and which is mirrored in the midday death-like sleep that provides temporary release from the sun at its apex. The large number of suicides among the European population in Kyoktada may be meant to suggest that the death drive at work in the settlement and elsewhere in Burma emerges from a general indolence generated by the empty nature of imperialism, as well as from deeper traumas like the massacre at Amritsar in 1919. The rather sinister English cemetery, with its glittering whitish tombstones, stands as a memento mori, a reminder of death, like the dusty skulls of Samba in the club, in the midst of a life verging on deathliness. Even the Lacastine residence smells like dying flowers. The reassuring atmosphere of club chatter may, then, be a kind of compensatory self-comfort, a desolating mode of talk indulged in by the club members to keep their minds away from the evident morbidity of the lives they lead and of the world to which they belong. The club members ignore their own beastly qualities by imagining, that is, by inventing, 
the beastliness, in others, and then through scheming to keep it at bay. The most obvious instance of this is Ellis's frothing incredulity at Flory's proposal to admit Dr. Veraswamy to membership. And this prompts Ellis to begin a campaign of racist hate against the Doctor and against Flory's support of him. Ellis is the club's most foregrounded diehard xenophobe, but Mrs. Lackerstein runs him a close second, with her fears exacerbated in turn by Yupokian's machinations about the insolence of the local population, which makes them almost as bad as the lower classes at home, and her distress at the thought of being, in the novel's wording, raped by jet-black coolies with rolling white eyeballs. This is startling, offensive language, and it's meant to be. It gives a sense of just how paranoid about the local Burmese population Mrs. Lackerstein has allowed herself to become. Her plot to marry off her niece, Elizabeth, to a suitor more respectable than Flory, who in her eyes is little more than a drunken wretch, is bound up with class prejudice, Beryl being higher up the pyramid in this respect than Flory, and with racial intolerance. There's an evident relish in the way Mrs. Lackerstein reveals to Elizabeth that Flory has been keeping a Burmese woman, and this penchant for stirring up trouble may in turn be a consequence of her devilish nature, a detail suggested by the way she loops about the club lounge's chairs like a hysterical snake and clasps her niece's shoulders with saurian hands. The taint of the club's degradation is visible in its members' behaviour, and it's just as clear in its furnishings and paraphernalia. Unlike the shiny illustrated papers which adorn the club's main lounge, its library, the mocking scare quotes are Orwell's, is a forlorn, pitiful space comprising a mere 500 novels, all of which are mildewed, that is, infested with mould. An enlivening home for repositories of knowledge the club is not. Just as Flory's bedroom includes some rough bookshelves containing several hundred books, all mildewed by many rainy seasons, the club maintains a respectably enlightened facade that hides a rot within. Talk in the club is marked by the banality of interminable discussions of gramophone records, dogs and tennis rackets, and the light that streams into its interiors through its green-chicked windows makes eyes ache and fills heads with stuffiness. A haunt for fat men, it is something of the air of Comrades Imperial and Metropolitan interiors, particularly those described in The Secret Agent of 1907, which are frequented by fat men in offices of power. Given that Orwell was a confirmed fan of Conrad's writing, there is something Conradian about the florid, fine-looking, slightly bloated man of 40 who sprawls across the lounge's table with his head in his hands, groaning in pain, a sign, presumably, of the previous night's indulgence, and about Yu Kin, the scheming magistrate whose elephantine body and plateau-like posterior mark out a hungriness that's perfectly in keeping with his political appetite, which from the start of the novel is signalled as a desire to batten on to British rule like a parasite. Such narrative details confirm that Orwell invested fully in the imaginative potential of what we would now call fat-shaming, attaching moral and ideological stigma to obesity. Think, for example, of the way he represents Squealer in Animal Farm and Parsons in 1984, two characters from either end of the moral spectrum, the one a double-dealing ideologue, the other a naive party liner, whose fatness, we're encouraged to think, makes them respectively untrustworthy and abject. The most fat-shamed character in Orwell's work, and arguably the best evidence of his own lipophobic sentiments, is George Bowling, the protagonist of Coming Up for Air. 
Burmese days is full of the language of lipophobia, fear of fatness. Um, and we can see this uh, everywhere from its representations of Yupo Kin, who is so fat that for years he has not risen from his chair without help and yet is shapely and even beautiful in his grossness. Its view that Flory does not look older than his age because he's not grown fat or bald. And its depictions of a mass of overweight minor officials, from the groaning man in the club to the fat sub-inspector noticed by Westfield, the fat but ravenous pleaders in Kyautada's courts, and the stout, rollicking, chuckle-headed youth with fat, fresh cheeks who assumes Verrill's command. Orwell's narrative attitude to all of this aims at even-handedness. White men sag and bulge just as the Burmese grow fat symmetrically like fruits swelling. Even so, the novel's lipophobic dimensions are questionable. Burmese Days draws on a pecking order of physical betterness, with the club as its centre point, in order to articulate its moral and political opposition to empire and its champions. In the end, it's all too clear that the sense of prestige associated with membership of the club gives a misleading impression of the values it promotes. Dr. Veraswamy's yearning for the cultured conversation he believes is exchanged within the club's teak-clad walls is a yearning for something that does not exist. The conversation, as we've seen, is all bigotry and triteness. Described as a spiritual citadel, its function in the novel is more akin to a fortress designed to keep the despised locals at bay, something like but not quite the same as the huge durable jails which the English have built everywhere between Gibraltar and Hong Kong. This hatred of such a symbolic focal space for empire, in Orwell's case, emerged from an insider's knowledge acquired through actually being there, on the ground, in the realms abroad from which, and in managed exploitation of which, the home country, Britain, secured its political, military, industrial, economic and cultural power. It was vital, he argued, to have an insider's view in order better to formulate and express the necessary degree of loathing. In order to hate imperialism, you have got to be part of it. Seen from the outside, the British rule in India appears, indeed, it is benevolent and even necessary. And so no doubt are the French rule in Morocco and the Dutch rule in Borneo, for people usually govern foreigners better than they govern themselves. But it is not possible to be part of such a system without recognising it as an unjustifiable tyranny. The European club sits squarely at the centre of that hate. And anyone tuned into the irony of the narrator's style will recognise the fun the novel has with the club's representation. With the idea of a private member's club as a citadel of spirituality, such institutions not usually being known for their saintly rectitude, with the related suggestion that such a club might be the nirvana of British power in Kyautada, the place in which the soul is released from its earthly material entanglements, with the self-serving xenophobia of the club's personnel and with the implied link between the mockingly presented club and the glittering Irrawaddy River, its diamond-like reflections echoing the club's function as a focal point for the glitzy depthlessness of spectacle and play. <laughs>